Welcome to an exegetical study of biblical scripture. This scripture is God's speech, God's story, written through the hands of men by his spirit, and it's all about God's glory. My name is Bryce Ferguson. Join me now as we go into the word. This is Genesis. Brothers and sisters, welcome to worship. Welcome to a time together in God's Word to learn from God together, seeking at the Holy Spirit to teach us and instruct us. Let's pray. Holy God, your people come before you and we seek to learn from you, God, the author and the creator of all life and the teacher of all mankind. For there is no wisdom and there is no knowledge outside of you, O Lord. You are the one who created all knowledge and you are the one who created all wisdom and you impart to man that wisdom. You impart to your children. James talks about that if anyone seeks wisdom, he should seek the Lord for wisdom. For the Lord is willing to give to all who seek from you. Teach us by your Holy Spirit that we might learn from you, that we might learn from your word. Bless this time together today to be fruitful because of the Holy Spirit. And please guard my words to be faithful to your scripture, O Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the Savior. Amen. The major themes woven throughout Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 have to do with sin. Obviously, it's been the topic of the conversation for multiple weeks here. That the Lord establishes his law. That the Lord, the creator of all things, the creator of mankind, the creator of the earth, he sets forth how it will go, how propriety is to be followed, how the rules are to be followed, that there are boundaries. And he has full authority to do it because he is God. Because he dwells eternally, because he is the creator of all things, because he is the creator of mankind. And like we spoke about in Genesis 1, how there are boundaries in God's creation that he created boundaries for the water and for the land and for the atmosphere and the rhythms between light and darkness, that there would be light and there would be darkness. But those two do not dwell together at the same time. It's a rhythm or a boundary. God creates boundaries. This is part of his established order, and that is the same for his commandments to man. In his law, we know this. We know his law is good. Why? Because God is good. Because God loves man, whom he created, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, in the image and after the likeness 
of God. And we talked about that every single week because it's that important. We need to understand that not only did God create us, humanity, in a completely, utterly indifferent way than everything else, but the responsibility to man and upon man to follow God's command and his law is great. We are not to piddle around in shallow waters or to chase sin and then when we're done chasing that sin, go over to this sin to live in the ways of the world. That is not it. God has a higher standard for mankind than chasing the ways of Satan, than chasing fleeting pleasure, than a lot of Ecclesiastes when Solomon sought pleasure outside of God. And in the realms of the earth, to the, to the far reaches of the earth, it says in Ecclesiastes that he sought the pleasures of man. Why did he do this? I don't know. Because he already had God. But like so many of Christians, of us Christians, even though we know God, even though we're saved by God, we still have a sin problem. There's still a proclivity within us that seeks out fleeting pleasure outside of God's command, outside of God's will. But that does not lead to joy. That does not lead to contentment. That does not lead to happiness. That does not fulfill that which we think that it will, which is the only reason that we go to it in the first place or commit it or the omission of it. Because sin can be both commission or taking an action or a thought, and it can also be omission, not doing something that God wants you to do. It's kind of like the lie in Genesis 3. That we believe the lie that this sin or that sin or the, the omission of something will bring us pleasure or relief from pain or will fulfill us in some way. And this was the lie from Satan to Eve. And because he, Adam, was standing right there with her, apparently, as we read in Scripture, this was also the lie from Satan to Adam. And guess what? It was a lie. I guess I just said that. It was a lie. It's not true. God's ways are the best. God's ways are for holiness. He wants to set us apart. He wants to encompass us within his love. In this relationship, he wants to envelope us. Yes, I use that as a verb because he wants to surround us. That's the type of relationship he wants to have with you. It's not a cursory relationship. It's not an on the fringes relationship. It's not a friendship or a relationship that he, that you may have with someone who says they'll be willing to hang out with you when they're in town kind of deal, but they live outside of town. It's not like that whatsoever. And I think something that is a weakness in the back of the human mind is when we think the relationship with God is either one supposed to be like that, a cursory relationship, where it's always at arm's reach. Yes, God, but. Yes, God, I know you're calling me to do this, but I, 
want this over here too, or I have a proclivity to this also, or, but I believe what this other person is telling me, or this temptation is telling me, is also right for me. So it's either that, or it's simply that we just don't believe God has our best in store with his command, and he does. And that's the lie from Satan we need to defeat in our mind and in our heart. Let's look at this for today's scripture. Yes, today we're in Genesis 3. Please open your Bibles if you haven't yet. But let's look at the command again first in Genesis 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man a saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now let's jump to chapter 3, starting in verse 16. We talked about this last week. These are the curses, respectively, to the woman and then to the man, to Eve and then to Adam. To the woman, he said, I will sure, this is God speaking. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And now today's scripture, continuing in verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So what we see here is what I see as an exile. That God is banishing Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, the place of abundance. We talked about this a little bit uh, last week. That no longer, because of their choice to rebel against God, in the commandment in Genesis 2. God said that when you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is a precursor to the death that God said was the consequence for rebelling against him in the commandment. That they would be exiled, that the curses described here would be the judgment on them this is not a condemnation of them outside of relationship from God. 
but God is removing himself from physical presence with Adam and Eve in the garden. They were together in the garden before, up to this point, and God says no more. Because God cannot dwell where sin is present. His presence, he, he cannot coexist where sin exists. And this is not to say, again to reiterate, this is not to say that though you fall in sin as a believer, that God is not going to be in relationship with you. That's not it whatsoever. I just want to clarify that. What he's saying is, I'm removing my physical presence among your physical presence. There was a closeness that was breached. There was an unfaithfulness with Adam and with Eve individually in their individual relationship with God. And because they're married, also there is a oneness there, which God created, which is very good. But there was a oneness there that rebelled against God also. They did it individually and it affected their individual relationships with God because all of us have a personal, very individual relationship with God, but also in a marriage covenant, there is a responsibility as a single unit also, which God has joined together. And the Bible says, let man not separate. There is a unit that is created, that is formed, that is forged together to worship God and to be in faithful covenant with God. And that was also breached. So Adam and Eve were to be exiled from the presence of God. They were to be exiled from the Garden of Eden. So Adam and Eve are exiled in these verses here. This is the judgment against them, the consequence for sin. And yet, we know God affirms that he's still in relationship with them in the blessing of children in the first few verses of Genesis 4. Children are a blessing from God. The act, the possibility that they could have children was absolutely a blessing from God. For there had been no offspring on the earth until the start of Genesis 4, until God created him. And because humans are made in the image after the likeness of God, I believe that God is always directly involved with the birth of a human being because it's that important to God. What do we also see about exile? For those of you familiar with the scripture, we also see that God's people were exiled into the land of Egypt in Exodus 1.8. And that after a fair bit of time, they were delivered from Egypt by God after 430 years. And the last part, they were not residents of Egypt. They were slaves to the Egyptians. And they were delivered in Exodus chapter 12, verse 37. We also see God's people were exiled to wander and die in the desert right after that due to disobedience. This is referenced in Exodus chapter 16, starting in verse 1, Numbers 14, starting in verse 21, 
And then the people were delivered from the desert that they had to wander in for 40 years and into the promised land. And you can read about that starting in Joshua 1 verse 2. We also see God's people were exiled to Babylon in 2 Kings 24.10. And they were delivered back to the promised land in Ezra 2. And then there was the silence of 400 years after the book of Malachi. You can read about this in Malachi chapter 2. And then the people of God were delivered the Messiah after that very long time of silence in biblical history in Matthew 1 verse 18. So exile. You know, exile was always a punishment because of disobedience, because of the covenant relationship that God made with his people, and they were unfaithful to it. We see this one example in Genesis 2. It is this one command, do not eat from this one tree. And they believed the lie, and they took, and they ate. So it was this one act of disobedience. It was this monumental act of disobedience. It was a severe act, is a better word, of disobedience. It was rebellion against God. It was distrust in God. It was a belief clinging to a satanic belief that God lied, and God never lies. God is holy. God is set apart. God is righteous. God is faithful. God is true. This is who God is. And in all of that, God is extremely loving, folks. You have not known a love on earth that comes even close to comparing to God's powerful and compassionate and wonderful love for you. But whenever there is exile, whenever there is punishment, it tends to be because of a repeated offense because of repeated unfaithfulness. Genesis 2, we see the one act causing the exile, causing the punishment. And sometimes with God, it is one act. And sin really is that serious. And that's what we as Christians need to get into our mind and into our heart, is that it really is that serious. That's what drove Jesus to earth and Jesus to the cross. Because even one act of disobedience, that's what it would have taken. But when it results in exile for God's people in the Old Testament, it is because of repeated offenses, because of repeated unfaithfulness in the covenant relationship with God. And God wants, and God has made over and over and over and over again, a covenant relationship with his people. This is more than just a promise. This is more than just a friendship. This is more than just a personal relationship. This is a covenant. And a covenant is detailed. And a covenant is deep. And a covenant is thorough. And a covenant is loving. And a covenant has consequences for unfaithfulness. And you don't want to be in a cursory relationship because here's my question. Is that really a relationship? 
So a covenant is the most beautiful type of relationship. But whenever there is exile, always God speaks of restoration after a time. Because God will be faithful to his covenant, even if his people are unfaithful. That's how beautiful God is. That's how deep God is. That's how committed God is to the covenant. We see God's establishing of his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 1. God's decree of his covenant with Abraham's son, Isaac, in Genesis 17, verse 19. And then God's affirmation of the covenant to Isaac's son, three generations, Jacob, in Genesis 28. And again, in Genesis 35, 9, when God changes Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel. And the 12 tribes of Israel are established in the lineage of Jacob's sons spoken of in Genesis 35, 22 through 26. And God worked through his chosen to continue the legacy of his people. Because God is committed to his people. Because God is committed to his covenant. And it is beautiful. Let's read about God's commitment to his people. In this account in Exodus 3, starting in verse 1, this is while God's people were slaves in Egypt. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us and now. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Folks, God is faithful. And what God says to his people in Deuteronomy 8, verse 5, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. And that's repeated in the New Testament, that the Lord disciplines a son whom he loves. So in exile, the people were driven out because of unfaithfulness in the covenant, but it does not mean the end of the relationship. It does not mean that they are condemned to die apart from God. Yes, the judgment to Adam and Eve from in Genesis 3 about the commandment in Genesis 2 is their death. And it does cause their death. For they would not have died on the earth if it had not been for sin. But they went outside the command of God. They sought something outside the command of God. They sought something around the command of God. And God said, no. He said, no in the original commandment. He said, you shall not. Because God is a God of law. And God is a God of order. And God is a God of justice. And there is a penalty for sin because that is what keeps holiness holy. And God knew that mankind would have a sin problem. None of this surprised God. None of this was outside of God's purview or outside of his knowledge. He knew that this would happen. When he asked those questions to Adam in the garden, where are you? He knew where Adam was. The question was giving Adam the opportunity to step forward. This is the beautiful aspect of a relationship. That it's not a taskmaster to a slave. That it's always, or, or would come across as just dominant or domineering. He asks him questions to get the truth. To get the answer. Because he wants to hear 
Adam say it. And he wants to hear what is in Adam's mind and in Adam's heart. And once that is revealed, yes, there is punishment for the sin. But what's also revealed is Adam's mind and Adam's heart. And Eve's mind and Eve's heart. And they both changed their mind and they both changed their heart when they went after something outside of God's command. See, it wasn't just an act. It wasn't just a random act. Your actions are not detached from your mind and from your heart. They're part of it. They're an outflow of that. They're connected. We are connected human beings. Our mind and our heart and our body all work together. And what we say is an outflow of what's in our heart. I mentioned last time about what is said in the curses and what is not said in the curses. And what is not said in the curses is a condemnation. There's a difference between discipline and condemnation. Condemnation is there's nothing left. There's no good left. The Bible talks about condemnation, about those who go to hell, who are to be apart from God forever because they did not surrender their lives to God, because they did not submit to God, because they did not worship God, because they did not love God. This is condemnation. That's not what we see here. God does not condemn them. God disciplines them. And there is discipline to maintain the beautiful aspect of the covenant, to maintain the beautiful aspect of what faithfulness is and what a covenant with God is and what holiness is and what righteousness is and what the scripture is and what the word of God is and who God is. See, when we surrender to God in relationship, we're saying we take the name of Christ upon us, okay, as Christians, of Christ, in Christ. This is what Christian means. It's a very, very serious matter. If you know someone who, has, who proclaims himself a Christian, but has no idea what that means, does not know the word of God, does not seek God, does not worship God, that doesn't really testify to being in Christ or being of Christ. So whether that person is really saved is between them and God, of course, of what the Bible says. But Jesus also says in the parable of the fig tree over and over again, you will know a tree by its fruit. You shouldn't wonder if someone's a Christian. It should be obvious. It should be obvious. And let us all take that to heart with how we're living our lives on a daily basis. At work, with friends, when we're out in public, when we're shopping, our love and our testimony of God should be evident. And aren't we glad that we're not condemned for sin? But guess what? God does discipline a son whom he loves. So in exile, when people are banished from the presence of God, when we read in the Old Testament, when we read about Adam and Eve right here, 
It's not from relationship with God. God still says, you will be my people and I will be your God. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. And my covenant is about obeying my commandments. So this is not an interpretation in the church about whether we can obey this commandment of God, or perhaps this is not a commandment of God to be obeyed, dependent on the church, dependent on the denomination. No. God's commandments are for all of his children. And he says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And when we start embracing God's commandments, when we start valuing God's commandments at the same level that he does, which is fully, by the way, when we start having this passionate pursuit and this passionate seeking and this passionate run towards the commandments of God, a holding of the commandments of God, a valuing of the commandments of God, then we are honoring him in the covenant. Then God says, you are being of Christ. You are being in Christ. You are being my children in the image and the likeness of God. This is what God desires for all of his children. And if we live in the ways of the world and we don't live in the ways of God, are we acting like God's children? Do we have the mind and the heart of God in that? Are we Christians? God says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Now let's look at the passage here. God made them clothing of animal skins. And it says he clothed them. So what is the cost of an animal skin? Well, it requires the death of the animal. It requires bloodshed or sacrifice. There's a foreshadowing here of the sacrifices of the people of God with the tabernacle. And then later with the temple, it's the covering of shame that he covered them. They didn't need to cover themselves anymore. God says, I'm going to cover you. It's going to require a sacrifice. It's going to require a blood sacrifice. This is the covering for guilt, the covering for sin, and it requires justice. See, sin cannot happen without consequence. And there's a requirement in that. And God says, I know what that is. I know what that requires. And here, I'm going to start it for you with this animal sacrifice. And then he would continue in scripture to show the people the propriety of sacrifices that he requires for sin, for guilt. And there's free will offerings and there's wave offerings and all the way down the line. One other connection uh, between Genesis 3 and Exodus 3, which I read before, I forgot to mention. As God affirms to his people, even out of slavery, that God has a plan, that God has a solution, that God is going to bring them back or restore them out of exile. It's exactly one book apart, chapter for chapter, Genesis 3, Exodus 3. 
That may just be coincidence, but I look at it as the continuity that God does not give up on his people. And that whenever there is an exile, there is also a restoration plan. So back to Genesis 3. The Lord God said in verse 22, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. This is part of his curse. By the way, if we back up a few verses, he said of Adam in verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for your dust and to dust you shall return. Now in terms of the tree of life, and eat and live forever, I will confess that is a bit of a mystery. What I do not think it is saying is that if Adam or Eve had eaten from the tree of life, that they would be actualized like God. For we all know. The God is God alone. There is no other God, the first commandment. So perhaps this is saying, well, obviously it's saying something else here. There is a bit of mystery in this. I don't fully understand that, and I'll confess that. So let's look at what is direct and what is obvious. Verse 23, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. That's more assertive or stronger than that language. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What do we know here? He drove out the man. That was very direct. Adam and Eve are now banished from the Garden of Eden, the place of abundance, the place where God physically walked with Adam and Eve. Because it's said that they heard the sound of God walking in the garden earlier in chapter 3. So we know God walked among them. And I'm assuming God spoke with them. And God was in relationship with them and God taught them. This was the type of relationship they had with him in the Garden of Eden. And now they're banished from that place. And they're destined for pain. They're destined for hardship. It's noted in the curses. And yes, from the commandment, they are destined to die. But not without hope. And also, I believe that God did this in a way, limiting their life on earth so that they would not always need to live under the weight of sin, the repercussions of sin, the consequences of sin, and the guilt of sin before their relationship with God. So in part, this was merciful. But obviously, they did not understand fully what death meant until it happened. And I think that happens a lot with us today, doesn't it? You may, you may read the word of God. You may understand the warnings, children with their parents. You may be told not to do something or told to do something or else, you know, there's a consequence and that's not a bad thing. 
This is setting boundaries. This is commandments, perhaps, from a parent to their child. And this is a good thing. And there is a warning that, hey, this is the consequence. Now, I'll say often children do not understand fully what the consequence is until it happens. Or perhaps they do. But the point is, there is a warning. Warning, warning, warning. God is declaring this. Listen to this. Heed the warning. That's the point. God establishes the law. God gives us his command. Or else, death. They didn't heed that. So now that will come. And because they didn't heed the warning, the result is far worse than what they would have believed it to be. Or they would not have gone outside the will of God. Something else I want to address real quick is that as God calls us to relationship, sometimes I hear this, and so I want to defeat the lie. We are not called, folks, to believe in God just to, quote-unquote, be in heaven someday. Life is very fleeting on earth. Some babies do not live one day. Others will live to 100 years old or older. Others will live till their 20s or their 30s. Some die as teenagers. Some die in adolescence. Some die in their early 40s. Some die in their mid-50s. Some die in their early 60s. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. And guess what? God powerfully calls us to repent and trust in Christ today. The utter change in your life of surrendering to Jesus Christ means that he is calling you out of darkness and sin and the ways of Satan and into the light of Christ at that moment, at this moment, for every future day of your life on earth, yes, and then for eternity in heaven. But if you were taught that you were just saved for heaven without also being taught that Christ saves you now to be in a close personal relationship with you every single day of your life on earth because that will utterly change everything about you, then you were mistaught. Because God has a lot more in mind for us than just some future date. Hope for heaven and hope for the future is good and it is biblical and we should have our eyes and our focus on the kingdom of heaven at all times and to know and to rest secured and to be so joyful and so thankful that this world is not our home and that, yes, we do have a home and it is waiting for us. But it's also here and now today in that God wants to utterly transform your life in a personal relationship, values, desires, Rules, commands, which are a joy to follow in the Lord. We can live focused on the kingdom of God in our lives on earth. And it is this call from God that he calls to us. Though we're in a fallen world, though we're under the curse, though we're exiled from the ideal location 
of a physical presence with God, that we can have today a close abiding personal relationship with him. God wants us to know his ways. He wants us to know his truths. He wants us to know him and to learn, to think, to love, to move, to breathe in a way that he does in his ways. This is why we were created in the image and after the likeness of God. And those who surrender their lives to Jesus Christ fully realize what that means. And those who do not give their lives to Christ, though they were made in the image of God, they slowly drift away from that image all their lives until they are forever apart from God, meaning that they are no longer in the image of God. Because, folks, God cannot dwell where sin abounds. And those who do not surrender to God abide with sin, which is of Satan. And God is absolutely opposed to Satan because Satan is absolutely opposed to God. Think of sin and Satan as basically very similar. Because God is completely set apart, holy, and righteous. There is no commingling with that which is opposed to God. Jesus' name in Revelation is faithful and true. Faithful and true. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we are called to surrender our whole lives to God in worship for relationship and for true life. I have one more passage that I want to read in closing from Romans chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn there with me. Starting in verse 12, because folks, we are not without hope in God. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, 
grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Adam started humanity on earth. Well, God started it through Adam. But Adam's choice started sin for humanity on earth. But God always had a restoration plan because God has full knowledge. God knew man would sin, and God knew that he had a rescue plan. And that rescue plan was the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And this passage in Romans 5 is a great study text, folks. There is so much here. Romans 5, 12 through 20. And that the condemnation that it talks about, and I, talk, I spoke about condemnation earlier, the condemnation is that the weight of sin is death. But for those who are in a personal relationship with God and through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and trusting in Jesus Christ, that condemnation is substituted by God through the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And this justification takes our place and we are welcomed into relationship again with God and into the kingdom of God. This is what God has for his children. This is what God has in store in the personal relationship. And it's only because of what Jesus Christ did that we can have this relationship. And this is the offer to all of us today. Will you believe? Will you surrender your life to Jesus Christ? Will you obey God's commandments because there is no relationship without obeying God's commandments? That though you fall, repent to God, confess to God, lay it before God, and plead God's forgiveness because of what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf, and let Jesus Christ's sacrifice for sin be your sacrifice for your sin. And tell God, I need the blood of Jesus Christ to cover my sin. Because there is no way to God the Father except through Jesus Christ. The other part of John 14, 6 that I didn't read a moment or quote a moment ago is the second line of John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, no one may come to the Father except through me. So our reconciliation to God is only through Jesus Christ. Oh, that you would believe and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and so that you can experience true life in God today and for always. Let's pray. Lord God, the one who knows our hearts, the one who knows our minds, the one who knows that we will be faithful or we will be unfaithful, and the one who knows when we're going to do that. You've known us, like David said, 
while we were in our mother's womb. You've known us before we were created, God, because you have full knowledge, because you dwell outside of time, and you are a good God, and you are a loving God, and worthy to be praised above all others. Above all the earth, God, you alone are worthy. There is no other God but you. And your law is something beautiful. And your forgiveness is something amazing. And the gift of Jesus Christ on our behalf, your son sent to earth to live a life, to show us the way to the Father, to show us how to live as humans on earth in worship of you, in obedience of you, and then to die for our sin and to be resurrected because death could not hold him is utterly amazing. You knew what it would take you knew it would take the ultimate sacrifice. And Jesus Christ, you were willing to do it for us. This is love. This is a powerful love. Let us not lose sight of this love and let us respond in love for the glory of God alone. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Join me next time as we continue in Genesis chapter 4.